Father, I pray as we look at this, uh, another uh, difficult topic to speak about, I, I pray that uh, you'd fill me with your spirit so that my words are controlled, that they're adequate, that they're uh, challenging when they need to be and gentle when they need to be, full of grace and full of truth. Help us to receive this word and, and help us to walk in it. That's what we want to do. We want to walk in what you've told us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so, first of all, uh, my boys, Derek and Brayden, this one's for you. So pull out your notes. All right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right, there we go. So please listen. Please listen. I'm going to try to preach this in a way that works for... Uh, any age, even though I know it's a more difficult story in the life of David. So uh, I say that to my boys because I remember uh, I remember this story, David and Bathsheba, when I was in uh, high school, and I'm, I distinctly remember my senior pastor preaching it, and uh, I remember some of the points he made. You know, I, I just it was profound to me at that time. So uh, I've been impacted by this passage in the past. I'll start like this, though. Um, so I, I listen to what people say about, especially people in the church, what people are saying about human sexuality, and I listen to what they say about marriage, and then, and then I look at lives, like how people are living, and, and the people that come to me for weddings, and uh, I get asked frequently to do weddings that I cannot do. I, I just can't do them because of, the sexual immorality going on uh, within the relationship. And it's not that I don't ask them to, to separate from living together. It's just that they, they don't want to do that. It's too hard. And so, uh, but, but I think about the things that I'm seeing and hearing, and one of the things that seems very at odds that, that's coming from the church is, is this. So we ha- often have children that grow up, and then they go to college, and, and we, we probably talk to them about this idea that you shouldn't move in together, you, you should save yourself for marriage. But the culture, of course, is speaking a very different way about this. And so uh, we, we see our young people moving in together, we see them uh, getting involved in sexual relationships with other people, and it, it bothers us, and we kind of shake our heads, or we kind of say, God has a diff- better way, and, and we kind of leave it at that. But then I also see, on the other hand, I see uh, young people that are, uh, you know, uh, maybe maybe early twenties, and they decide they want to honor the Lord and they want to they want to get married at a young age, and 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 our response is like, "What are you thinking? Are you crazy? You're way too young. You're not mature enough. Come on now. Certainly, you got to get your college degree." Get a, how are you going to provide for this person? And we, and we go on and on and on and on and on. And of course, I think it's kind of funny and ironic because one of the reasons people move in together is because they can both help pay for that place. It's actually better financially. But I'm not here to argue finances. But that's, the, that's one of the main things I hear when I say separate. They'd say, how in the world would I do that? Financially. And I think, isn't it backwards that we in the church would say to a young 20-something, it's better in my eyes, it's a lesser of two evils, that you'd move in together, and yet I'm going to freak out 
over you getting married at a young age. Now you say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Many people aren't ready yet. They're really not ready, Niall. Don't you know? And then I say, well, whose fault is that? Is it their fault? Could be. They may have rejected all the instruction they received throughout all their years. Or maybe they didn't receive that instruction. And they're not ready for marriage because we didn't help them get ready for marriage. And we were just hoping that by the time they hit age, I don't know, 20, late 20-something or 30, that they'd be ready. Because certainly a college degree makes you ready for marriage. And certainly getting a job makes you ready for marriage. We all know that's how it works. I'm a great husband because I have a job. Um, Yeah. So... I, as you can see, this, this one winds me up because I see a larger reaction coming from the church like, please don't get married. It's the worst thing you could do at a young age. And I'm like, really? Really? Because it seems to me if our culture is soaked in lust and pleasure and do what you want to do, and, it's, it, and our kids are drowning in that, it's an ocean of lust and we're drowning in it, wouldn't... Christian marriage, faithfulness, raising our kids to understand what that is and be committed for a lifetime, wouldn't that be the answer? Just just wondering. Now, there's my editorial. I'll step back, okay? Because Hebrews 13.4 says this. And whenever I sit down with, the, with with a couple that wants me to do their wedding and I know their sexual activity, this is my go-to verse. Hebrews 13.4. Keep the marriage bed pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Which is, which is an awesome verse because it, 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 in picturesque language, gives us like, this is it right here. There's a marriage bed. And if you don't keep the marriage bed pure, any, any sexual activity outside of the marriage bed is sin. Okay, or, or translation, any sexual activity outside of a husband and a wife within marriage is sin. And then it has that addition at the end of the verse, in case uh, we're wondering, well, 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 what if? You know, that's a sin like any other, right? I, I lie and I, and I do some bad things, and so this is one of those things. God will judge the sexually immoral. He will judge. And so there are, there are both actions God will take for our young people that are living together and engaging in this? Pornography in the same boat? There are actions God will take to judge. But then there's also just the built-in ramifications of doing that. There's just, it's just built into it. Uh, my small group uh, watched a message by Andy Stanley this last week, and I love the way he said it. He, he said when he talks to young people, or any people, he says, has... Sex outside of marriage made your life better or complicated it? And who in the world could say, my life is better because of sexuality outside of marriage? It complicates it. it co- and once you look at that and, and, and you see that keeping the marriage bed pure also keeps consequences away, 
it opens your mind to all sorts of things. You know, we've been talking about in the news for a long time or now Planned Parenthood and these videos that are coming out. And, and, and you watch it and go, you know, I know abortion's not only happening with, with uh, unmarried couples. I get that married couples are doing it too. But, but it's like th- this, is, this is the price to pay when I want pleasure and I want it now. Someone's got to pay and it's the unborn. It's the unborn. And so we are raising up serial killers that don't even know it because they haven't been taught it. They haven't been taught it. And, and just so you know, we have forgiveness because there's forgiveness for every sin. Every sin. And so you start making connections and you can go, man, this, this, this has wrecked us as a culture. It's led to so many complications and it is scarring our souls. It's scarring our souls because God designed it that way. God designed it to scar you if it's not within marriage. He just set it up that way. Enter David in uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel 11. Please turn there. Second Samuel 11 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent his word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked, him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace, to the palace of all of his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He didn't go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So Joab had the city under siege. He put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. 
He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Then you know they would shoot arrows from the wall. Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop the, uh, an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? When he asked you, then say to him, Moreover, Uriah, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The message was set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archer shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After that time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. How did David go so wrong? You know, this is the man after God's own heart. How did he go so wrong? And I just want to walk through the text again and, and just point out, here's what David did. This is where he went wrong. And maybe we can see in our own life where we go wrong by seeing what he did. And, and then maybe we can also see a solution to the problem. That's the way I'm preaching this morning. I just want to say, what did David do? And then what's the solution for that? And then kind of go from there. Okay, so number one... David was careless of his responsibilities. He was, he was careless of his responsibilities. It says, in the spring, when kings go out to war, where's David? He's at the palace. In fact, the, the Bible says uh, he's sitting. Did, did you catch that? Uh, he remained in Jerusalem. Maybe that's a more literal thing I was reading this week. But, but actually it says he was sitting in Jerusalem. He was sitting. You read this, and I've always kind of smiled when I read this because the Bible makes it sound like the king's hobby is fighting battles. You know, like in the spring, everybody fights a battle. You know, everybody gets out there and fights. Um, I think it's more of uh, convenience because in the spring, there, there, there's less rain there, and the ground hardens, and your army can travel easier in the spring. So get the army together, go out and, and fight. And so David... Um, he doesn't go. He, he's the giant slayer. He's the guy who leads Israel in their battles. And he doesn't go. He, he just stays where he's at. Problem. That's a problem. Like, he's the guy to lead the army. That's what he's been. But he stays. David was careless of his responsibilities. He, he, didn't, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. The Bible makes that pretty clear. So, What's the solution? How, how do I turn this around? Because we can all be careless of what we're supposed to be doing, but how does that lead to lust? How does that lead to adultery? How does that lead to murder? Well, I would say it like this. Solution. You ought to know what your triggers are. What, what pushes you to lust? What, what circumstances are going on when you find yourself most weak? Is it when you're alone? 
Is it when you're traveling? Is it when you're at work? Is it that person that you work with that's smiling at you? The one that talks kindly to you? Is it that person? Is it, is it the fact that there just exists this thing called internet? Is that all that it is? But, but there's a trigger there. there. There's something that leads our mind down to, I could do that. I could entertain that thought. I want, I want, I want to consider that a little bit. That's enticing. There's, there's external circumstances that often we walk right into. Anybody else hate Hardy's commercials? You know? Um, I, I can't watch a football game without, without you know, watching out for... It's not just Super Bowl, you know? Like, those are sometimes notoriously raunchy at times. But, but it, it's other stuff, too, that you're just watching with your kids, and you're like, oh, that's great. I can't go out and make popcorn because I need to stay in here to make sure what, what, what's being watched is okay. Know your triggers. What gets your mind going down that path? Write them down or mark them down and know when am I the weakest? Where am I the weakest? What are these points in my life? And, well, we'll talk about a plan in a minute. But I'll just plan not to go there. Plan not to go there. You know, um, it, it, it's one guy who said, uh, in a bigger city, the billboard thing would be the thing that would get him on the way to work. So he has to find a different route to work. You know? Just just think about that. It's a person that might even leave their job because of that person that's creating temptation and it's becoming unbearable. Would you do that? Because you know your triggers? So David's not where he's supposed to be. He's on top of the roof of the palace. It's probably a hot day because both David is outside trying to get some relief from the heat and Bathsheba is outside getting some relief from the heat as she's bathing. And, and you can picture David, he's, he's at the top of the palace, you know, like he's, he's on top of the world, looking down, on top of the world, looking down. And then he sees her and he covets. He covets. And kids, this is, you know, what, what Eric read earlier, Mr. Gustafson read earlier was, you know, uh, Jacob wanted Esau's blessing. I've got to have that. Adultery is just, I want to be married to someone that I'm not married to. And I, I want that person. It's coveting. There's a commandment about that. He coveted. He wanted this woman that he was looking at. And at that point, I'm reading it going, you know, this whole story could turn around here because... Obviously, he's starting to desire someone that God has said no to. She's married. She's not yours. You can't have her, you know. But, but he still wants that. We covet in many different ways. One thing is we covet people. Well, we covet things. We, we see what shoe, kids, you know, you see what shoes someone's wearing. You want that. You see what their clothes are wearing. You want to dress like that. We do that with people, too. When you get married, you say, I, I want that person. Turn this around. What's a solution here? Uh, David could have turned this whole thing around by saying this, or by doing this. Look away and pray. Look away and pray. Would not God in his mercy and grace like help David right then if he said, I need you because I'm looking at this person and I want her, and look away and God help me. I mean, David is the psalm writer, you know? 
We read his psalms on Sunday mornings, and we read them for our devotional life, and he's always praising the Lord for his help. God helped him with Goliath. God helped him when Saul was chasing after him. And you better believe God would help him that day. All he had to do was ask, God help me. And so I just want to encourage you. I know that when there's the moment of temptation, whether it's online or in person or wherever, God is so close to you that all you have to say truly is, God, help me. Three words, you know? Three words. God, help me. And God's not going to go, well, you should have been more specific about that, you know, and, and, well, you should have been up there in the first place. Well, yeah, he should have been there in the first place. But the help is there. Look away and pray. That's it. Uh, Some people would say, I would add, Quoting a verse, I've often said that, quote a verse, pull it out. You've got this thing in your memory, pull it out and, and, and say it out loud. But in that moment of temptation, you've got to do the same thing Jesus did. You've got to do what Jesus did, quote the Bible. Look away and pray. And you stop the cycle before it goes any further. Uh, if you're Joseph, you run away, you know. You run out of the room, right? Potiphar's wife, I'm running out of the room. And I think as you do this, as you keep looking away, you can make a habit of it so that it becomes an easier reaction than just looking away when you know other people are around you and will notice you, you know. It's easier then. But when you make a habit of it, you can do it better when you're alone when you're like David on the rooftop and no one else is around to watch you but the Lord. Thirdly, um, David is conniving. He's conniving. So, so he says, he sends for his servants and says, go find out who that woman is. You know, go, go, go find out for me. He sends word for her. He starts hatching a plan. This, this is danger zone right here. You know, he's, he's hatching a plan. He's, he's conniving. And, and they say, well, she's Bathsheba. She's a daughter of so-and-so and she's Uriah's wife. And that should have been like, time out, Uriah's wife. Nope, 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 no. Uriah's wife? That's what they said. That's what the scripture says. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba, by the way, means uh, daughter of an oath. Okay, just in case you thought she was named after her blunder of being outside at the time, you know. Uh, that's, that's weird. Yeah, I've always thought that's weird. Even in high school, I was like, that's so weird that her name is that. But um, her name means daughter of an oath. Okay, so there, there you go. So, so David's hatching this plan. He finds out who she is, who she belongs to. And yet he keeps planning, send for her, send for her. But let's stop there. David's scheming. We turn this around, and it's a solution for us, you know, because we can plan for purity, right? We don't have to connive for impurity. We can plan for purity. And some of you know this really well, because when there's impurity, one of the things you often do is you say, um, I'm going to figure out how to do this so that no one knows. And so you plan for impurity, we don't want anyone to find out what we're doing. You plan for impurity. And, and, and you turn that around and there's something really beautiful there and you can plan for purity. And this is where I want to talk to grandparents, grandparents and parents. 
if you hand your children, your grandchildren, a tablet, if you let them on your laptop and you have no accountability software on it, no blocks, then you become part of the problem. You become part of the problem. And I don't say that to, you know, whack you one on the nose. I just say it because I know your heart is good. I, I know that. You would never want your grandchild to get caught into this. But you know that they know technology. You know that. Because you asked them how to set up your email account, right, in the first place. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> Call my grandson. He knows. You've got to put something on there. You've got to ask somebody that knows more about it than you to help you put it on there. You know, I'll, I'll just reiterate again. My boys have iPods, you know, um, and I've got a, a software on there that I can see anywhere they go online, anywhere, and, and I have the app on my phone so I can look it up at any time. So not only does it block things, but it shows me even what they're searching for. Not that I don't trust them. My, my, my boys are awesome, and, and they have a relationship with me where they, they come to me and ask me things, you know. That's awesome. I hope they do that forever, forever. But it, it's still that step of we don't trust our own sinful flesh. And by the way, I have the same thing on mine, and Christy has that too, you know. So the same, the same applies to me. You've you got to make a plan. And for some of you, it's just going to be sitting down and saying, uh, what are my triggers? How can I block myself? What can I do to plan to follow the Lord? Because I know this temptation will be back. Where am I going to start reading in the Bible? How am I going to start praying about this? What, what verses am I going to memorize? You made a good plan to keep this sin a secret. Now what's your good plan for handling it so that you don't go back to it? You can do this. Get the blank sheet of paper out and start writing it down. David had a plan, a bad plan. Um, Number four, David used his power to coerce Bathsheba. He used his power. Uh, The king sends word, you're to come to the palace. Now, I, I, I know, I know. When you talk to people about this story, the, the question comes up, is Bathsheba the victim or the vixen? You know, that, 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 that's the way it goes. And, and maybe, that, maybe however you answer that question, it might say more about you than about what's really happening in the story because the Bible is just silent. But, I, but there's a few things that I read here that I, I lean towards victim. And, and I know... The Bible portrays this in some ways as consensual. It doesn't portray it as force. But when you've got a guy in power, the king, he's the most powerful human being in Israel. And he sends word for this woman, Bathsheba, and come to the palace. Are you going to tell the king no? You say, well, certainly she could. She should stand up for Sure. But in that moment, are you? Are you? I don't know. And I read the end of the story and it says she mourned for her husband. Sounds like emotions pouring out of her for the man who's now dead that she was married to. So I I don't know in that moment what was really going on, but I know the king abused his power. I can say that for sure. 
Even the story sets up David that way as he's looking down. He's the master of all he surveys from the top of the palace. Do you see how the story sets up? And then the king sends word, bring her to me. The king is doing this, and Bathsheba's role is mostly silent. He uses his power to coerce her. Now, let's turn that around again. We have power. By the way, I mean, we, by the way, we understand this in our culture really well. If you're a teacher at a school and you use your power to coerce a student, we have laws about that. You'll be in huge trouble. We understand that there's power positions and you can abuse your power to get someone to do what they maybe don't want to do or maybe do want to do, but you're still responsible, King David. Same goes for pastors. Um, Turn it around. We have power. We have supernatural power. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. So let's let the Spirit empower us to do what God wants us to do, to reject this sin. He will help you, okay? He'll help you. Not only does He wash you clean, so it's like you never sinned in the first place, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a miracle in and of itself. But, but He empowers you not to go back to it. Holy Spirit. So, when we talk about the filling of the Spirit, all, all we're saying is, control me. Control me. Fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Control me. Be empowered. Uh, Ephesians says, the same spiritual power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Really? The same thing that can bring a dead guy back to life is in me? Galatians says, keep in step with the Spirit. It says, don't, don't fall into these desires of the sinful nature. If, if you follow the Spirit, you won't follow those. Connect to the Spirit. Ask Him to help you. He's living in you. And He will. He will. Be empowered. Because you have a stronger power than your sinful nature. And it's living inside you. Um... Fifthly, fifthly, um, David tried to cover it all up. He tried to cover it all up. So first of all, he says, he brings Uriah in and says, uh, Uriah, come on in from battle and go home and celebrate, be with your wife. Because Bathsheba has now sent word to David and she says, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. The child's yours. My husband's been away at battle. David, you're the father here. And David does what many of us in the knee-jerk reaction would do. How do I cover my sin? Not cover it with the blood of Christ. How do I cover it so that no one knows about it? No one finds out about it. You notice here that he's not willing to say, Bathsheba, divorce and marry me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't want scandal. He doesn't want people talking. He doesn't want the public to know what the king has done. That's the way we are. We don't want people to know. This isn't love. This is cover. Cover it up. And so he brings Uriah in and, and go home and be with your wife. And look, it's the rule of battle. You can look it up. It's in, it's in Samuel. It's in, it's in uh, the uh, Torah. When you're a battle, women are kept from the men. That, that, that's what, uh, that's what uh, when David and his, his band of uh, men are fighting earlier in 1 Samuel... Uh, he says that. None of my men have been with women. That's just the way it goes. You don't do that. You're fighting the battle. That's your commitment. And so you're away from your wives. 
your way. And Uriah says, I'm not going home. So, so the first cover-up is a little more clean, if you could call it that. Second cover-up is, well, how about stay another day and I'm going to get you drunk. Now, remember, Uriah is a Hittite. I mean, I, I don't know if you ever thought about this. It's not Uriah the Israelite, okay? It's not Uriah the Israelite. It's Uriah the Hittite. So I don't know what that says to you, but you, you, whatever background you have, whatever excuses you've made, like, well, that's just the way, that's the way I'm wired. It's the way I am. I, I can't stop doing that. The devil's told you that you can't stop, okay? Uriah is a Hittite. He's not an Israelite. But he worships the one true God, right? He worships the one true God and says, even drunk, even though the king's making me drink all this, I'm not going home because I made my commitment to Israel, to Yahweh. I will not go home. That's my commitment to my people. Uriah the Hittite. Third time he tries to cover up and David says, send word for Joab. When Uriah goes back, put him at the front lines of the fiercest battle you can find. Withdraw and let him be struck down. And now we've got murder. We've got murder. And that's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. And David receives word that Uriah is killed. And so David says, Don't let it bother you, Joab. Send word back to Joab. Don't let it bother you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Let's stop here. What's our solution here? Uh, David tries to cover it up. What's the opposite of covering it up? Exposing it. Confessing it. I heard someone say confess. You confess it. Not only do you confess it to the Lord, find a mature Christian and confess it. Someone that understands grace, that isn't going to be like you, dirty, rotten. Someone that understands grace, that can love you in this, and confess it to them. Confess it to them. Tell them what you've done. If you don't pull your sin out into the light, chances are you will keep covering it as long as you can until you get caught red-handed. Okay? Let's just admit right here that even though we might not be the one to kill someone to cover our sin, maybe we wouldn't go that far. We'd say that at least. You will go very, very, very far in covering your own sin. And the only way you can break that cycle that I know of that really works is not only to confess it to God, you know He knows already, but also to confess it to a person, a safe person who can pray, who can talk to you and, and help you, who can help restore you, as Paul says, I believe in Galatians, restoring a sinner. How do you do this if you don't bring it into the light? I don't know. I don't know how you do it. Usually when I get involved in people's lives, it's at the point where they've been caught. And then they talk to me. Every once in a while, someone will talk to me before they get caught. And that's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Okay. Uh, uh, Last thing here. Uh, It says, I want to read this verse. I want to make a big point about it. Um, All these things happen, right? Verse 26 of chapter 11, Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead and she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing 
here it is. Here it is. I mean, here's your, here's your like climax to the to this chapter. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You know what it says literally? But it was evil in the sight of the Lord. You could write that in your Bibles if you like to take notes like that. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. David, when he talks to Joab and has Uriah killed in that battle, when David writes back to Joab, he says, Tell Joab, don't let it bother you. That's what the the NIV says. David literally says, Let it not be evil in your sight that Uriah was killed. Let it not be evil. But it was. But it was. And so who gets the last word on David's actions? Who gets the last word on our actions? The Lord does. And so, you know, I don't know how much you've justified your sin. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what excuses you make, but there's a lot of them in the church today, even to the point where some churches are compromising and calling sin good, right? We, we know this is happening in our country. I know a couple who were teaching Sunday school at their church, even though they were living together. They're still teaching children the Bible, although they're living together out of wedlock. What is our issue here? What's our problem? It only matters what God calls evil. That's the bottom line here. It only matters. And sexuality is an awesome gift in marriage. Enjoy it. It's like that fire. We've talked about that before. The fire in the fireplace is awesome. But start running around your house with lit matches and it's going to burn the place down. It's evil in the sight of the Lord. He gets the last word and he silences our objections. It's evil. Would you look at James chapter 1? It's in your notes there. This is what lust does. Lust brings death. It brings death. That's the point of the story, isn't it? David's lust yielded adultery, which eventually yielded death, murder. When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire on the roof of your house, he's dragged away and enticed. Sin's pretty powerful to drag you away, isn't it? It is. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. Look, there's a price to pay. There's a... When you engage in sexual sin, which is any sexuality outside of marriage, you are helping give birth to something. And it doesn't matter if you use contraceptives. And it doesn't matter if it's just online, so it's, um, it's faceless as far as like, it has no, it's victimless crime, people say. It's online, it's on the video. There is a child born. And that child is called death. It's called death. And, and you can do whatever you want to try to block the consequences, but death is scarring your soul, Okay? That, that's just James. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. There's this dead thing growing, and I'm feeding it. I'm feeding it. And when it's born, it's going to hurt so many 
people. You can't keep covering it up. One day it will be born. One day it will be born. I'll give you a different analogy. So, let's say you want to buy a new car. You go to the dealer. You want to buy big. The dealer tells you, you can go even bigger. We'll sell you a BMW. You don't have to pay a cent for it. But one day in the future, at a time you don't know, I'll come to collect the payment in full. But you can drive the car away right now. No money down. Just take it and go. And you can go years and years, and one day I will come and collect. You better believe he'll be by to come and collect. And if you drive that car away today, you might be thrilled, and it might be pleasurable, and you might have a lot of fun in that car. and get, oh. But one day he comes to collect. And that's just a simple, you, you, you reap what you sow. I've been feeding death. One day death is going to say, it's time to pay up. It's time to pay up. And when that happens, it kills your integrity. It kills relationships. It kills love. The lust kills all of these things because that's what death does. It kills. It just kills. And we're still driving the car. Instead of getting out of the car and saying, I'm done. You can have it back. I am done. God, forgive me for this foolish decision I made. I think we have a small view of God because we forget that as much as we want to control the consequences, He designed sexuality. And He designed it only to work and not scar you within marriage. The fire only works in a fireplace. Take it out, you're going to get burned. It's just the way it's designed to work. Our view of God is too small. Now look, I want to close with this. I've never been to a funeral where the deceased rises up and walks out of there. I've never seen it. So when sin gives birth to death, death is death, right? Death kills you. You're dead. I've never seen the deceased get up and walk on out of the funeral. I know what death is. You know what death is. God has a way of raising the dead. Right? And if there is hope, if there is hope here, Should I be able to see it in the story? Yes. Because God sends the prophet Nathan who goes to David. And Nathan says, let me tell you a story. There's a rich guy and a poor guy. The poor guy has a little lamb. And the rich guy wants to entertain a friend for dinner. And he takes the lamb of the poor man and serves it for dinner. And David, it's hot. Let that guy pay for what he's done. And Nathan says, you're the man. You are the man who's done this. You've taken what is not yours. You're the man. And so that child Bathsheba uh, had was was, was born and, and died because of the consequences of their sin. So I say, boy, th- th- there's a dead baby. There, there's, oh, where's the hope? Where's the hope? I'll show you. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 24. I shall back you up just for a moment. Um, verse 13 first. Second Samuel 12, 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. 
David repented. That's A. David repented of his sin. You can't begin to restore anything until you repent. Turn from the sin. Walk away from it. Confess it. Label it sin. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. Repent just means turning. You've turned from your sin. And once David repents, it opens up this door of hope. Because now look what you see in verse 24 and 25. Chapter 12, 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word to Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. I didn't even know Solomon had two names until I read that, by the way. There you go. There you go. Um, it always starts with repentance. Repent from your sin. B, is there hope here for David and for us? Yes, B, David comforted his wife, which brought intimacy instead of tragedy. The tragedy was their son, that that baby died as a consequence of their sin. But it says David comforted Bathsheba. There was some sort of intimacy there that was able to grow even though she'd lost her husband and she'd lost her child. There was some comfort the Lord gave them. Did they deserve it? I don't know. Maybe Bathsheba deserved it. They received some intimacy. Isn't that what we want when we've been scarred by sexual sin? Please give me intimacy with the person I'm married to. And David received it. Bathsheba received it. It's grace. In part C, Solomon was born whom God loves, which is why he's called Jedidiah. Solomon was born, it says, God loved him. Solomon is the result of David committing adultery and having Uriah killed, and and later Solomon is born. Solomon's the next king. You're going to make a king out of this ugly sin? Yeah. God can redeem that stuff. He can bring good stuff out of that. And in fact, he will because part D, and you know this, they're in the line of Christ. Solomon's in the line of Christ, the Savior of the world, who's going to forgive all sexual sins. There's hope. How does hope come out of adultery and murder? Easy. God's not limited by death. He's not limited by death. And so whatever dead thing you're giving birth to in your life, He can change that around. One scripture says, He can restore the years the locusts have eaten. He can change it around. There is hope. Um, At the beginning of the message, I, uh, I was thinking about, all the way through I'm preaching this and I'm thinking, ooh, I really came hard on the abortion thing earlier in the message. Let me circle back to that real quick. Um, I used a harsh term. It just kind of came out of my mouth, and I want to make sure I'm clear on that. I said serial killers. I'm referring to abortion doctors, okay? That's what I'm referring to, that, that, that are killing our innocent babies. That's what I'm referring to. I, I know enough women who have gone through the tragedy of that, And I'm just like, oh my goodness, God, send forgiveness and grace and comfort. Please, don't hear me label you anything. But there's a price to pay for those that have taken these lives and do it brazenly, as we've seen in the videos that we've seen. And it all started with, I'm going to have some pleasure without consequences. No, no, somebody had to pay. 
Somebody had to die for that pleasure. Only God can turn this country around. Only God can turn us around. Will we repent? And then receive the grace that we're like, boy, God, only you make a dead thing alive again. Only you can make a dead thing alive again. He can. And he will ask him. Let me pray for you. And we will be dismissed this morning.